Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Cop of murder. Sometimes, even when investigators know who the killer is, it can take years to actually have enough evidence to arrest. On February 7th, 1990, a man was sentenced for his crimes after decades of being a prime suspect. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. In November of 1981, 17-year-old Mark Davies and his 15-year-old brother John were living in Belmont, California with their family. A home that was frequently visited by their friend, 21-year-old John Scott Dunkel. Despite the age difference, the boys seemed to get along really well. And according to what Mark later told officials, John Dunkel often came by the house and threw rocks at his window so they could go sneak out without his parents knowing, often driving off to the Hassler Hospital site to explore the partially abandoned grounds. Everything seemed completely harmless until the morning of November 8, 1981, when James Davies called the local police to report his son, John, missing. According to his claims, he and his wife, Joan, came home at around 1.30 a.m. and noticed nothing amiss inside of the home. It wasn't until 8.30 rolled around when Joan, going to wake her son, noticed that John's church clothes had been laid out, but every other personal belonging, including his only pair of shoes, were still exactly where he left them inside of his room. Not the sort of child who would run away. Everyone turned to Mark to ask when was the last time he saw his brother. He said that the last time he saw John was at around 10.30 p.m. on November 7th, when he went to sleep. The family was completely at a loss, and James, wanting some help, called over to John Dunkel to ask if he could come over and put up missing persons flyers with them. He agreed, grabbed some of the flyers to put around the area, and never saw the Davies family ever again. Not really thinking anything of his sudden exit at the time, the police were under the impression that John simply ran away. But in mid-1982, after months of silence, Belmont Police Detective Gerald Whaley contacted John Dunkel to ask him a few questions. Because the Davies told officers that John Dunkel was their son's closest friend, the officer figured that he was the perfect person to ask where they liked to hang out. In fact, Detective Whaley contacted John a few times asking questions that he hoped would lead them to where young John might be hiding because it wasn't until September of 1984 
that the case ceased being that of a runaway and instead was being treated as a possible kidnapping. That's when the FBI was brought in, and on December 4th, 1984, Detective Whaley and FBI agent Robert Deglinski went over to John Dunkel's Sacramento residence to formally interview him. In that first interview, John denied ever seeing his missing friend on the night of November 7th, claiming he did not leave his parents' house that night and claimed he never once threw rocks at either Mark or John's window. However, in the second interview, the officials pressed John to define his relationship with the Davies brothers because what he said in that first interview was in direct contradiction to what Mark, James, and Joan were saying. Still, he remained steadfast that he never threw those rocks, never sat with John in his car listening to music, and absolutely never traveled to those hospital grounds to hang out at what they allegedly called the morgue. With nowhere to go from there, the case of John Davies went cold, and John Dunkel moved on with his life. What those men didn't know at the time was that just a few months before his interview with the detective and FBI agent, on October 2nd, 1984, at around 7 p.m., Belmont resident Margaret Turner called the police in a panic to report her 12-year-old son Lance missing. According to their chain of events, Timothy O'Brien drove both his sons and Lance to a soccer practice field behind the Ralston Intermediate School and began coaching his team. When practice ended, he asked Lance's coach, Ray Williamson, where the boy was. And he, confused, said he never showed up to practice that day. Timothy knew this couldn't be true. He had brought the boy there himself. So he began asking the other boys there that day if any of them had seen Lance. That's when several said they saw him walking towards Water Dog Lake, about three-eighths of a mile away from the field, and a search was immediately launched. A man named William Russell, who arrived at 6 p.m. to pick up his son, dropped off the boy and came back to join the search. At around 8.20 p.m., William shined his flashlight onto some bushes in a gully just off the path, and saw what appeared to be small feet sticking out of the bottom. There, lying underneath the overgrown brush, was the body of Lance Turner. According to the pathologist, who later testified in court, Lance had died from blood loss due to multiple stab wounds. Two to the heart, which were each fatal, and two to the lungs, which were potentially life-threatening. There were also numerous defensive wounds, leading them to believe that this young boy tried his best to fight off his attacker. Investigating the case, three young girls came forward, students at the Ralston Intermediate School, who would later testify that, on the morning of October 2nd, they left school at around 3 p.m. and skipped volleyball practice so they could go down to the lake and smoke some cigarettes. A man, who one of the girls would later describe as having dirty blonde hair, pimples, and dirty teeth with a retainer in, came up to them and struck up a conversation. Telling them his name was John and that he graduated the year before from Carlmont High School, the man was drinking a tall beer and offered it to the three girls. Leaving about 20 minutes later, the girls were not the only students to see this man walking near the lake. So, given those statements, on December 27, 1984, Belmont Police Detective Sergeant James Gollart 
interviewed John Dunkel and asked if he knew anything about Lance Turner. The only suspect in the crime, the detective advised him of his constitutional rights, and after agreeing, John denied ever having been at Water Dog Lake on October 2nd and claimed he was at home and then out to stores in Redwood City filling out job applications. Saying he returned home on the bus at around 4.30 p.m., when police spoke with the businesses he allegedly applied to, they had no such paperwork from John Dunkel. Needing more, though, in January of 1985, Belmont police officer Lisa Thomas agreed to go undercover and started working at the Carl's Jr. where John had recently found work. After working with him for several days a week, striking up a friendship, visiting him at his sister's home regularly, and sometimes going out on dates with him, Lisa reported that John often spoke about the investigation and at one point even showed her all the clippings he had about the case in a collection. Then on February 9th, John told her that the police and FBI had been to his home for five hours, confronting him, and that he lied to them during his questioning. Though he still maintained his innocence, he did seem to relish in the attention that he was getting from law enforcement. A few months later, James and Joan Davies showed up asking for several hours for information about their still missing son. Still saying he knew nothing about John's disappearance, he continued to claim ignorance even when the couple came back to see him in July of 1986. Now, back in April of 1985, John was arrested after being seen entering a Rancho Cordova home while under surveillance by the police department. He was eventually placed in a cell with a man named Charles Rice, who, on September 16, 1986, went to the investigator Michael Wiley and told him that his cellmate had confessed to killing John Davies and Lance Turner. Asking for nothing in return, Charles said that he went to the police because he was appalled by what John told him. Needing more information, on September 22, 1986, Charles Rice gave investigators two maps, both drawn by John Dunkel. And a week later, when he met up with John to talk, Charles was unknowingly outfitted with a wireless transmitter. Meaning that when John described in graphic detail the murders of John Davies and Lance Turner, the police were able to hear every single word of it, thanks to Charles who willingly put himself in danger to see justice done for those two children and their families. With John refusing to report the crimes because he claimed he did not trust the Belmont police, Charles told him that he had a friend who was an FBI agent who would help him if he just confessed. Arrangements were made, and on October 3rd, 1986, FBI Special Agents Frank Hickey and Daniel Payne came to interview John inside of the state prison. Advised of his constitutional rights and signing a waiver, John Dunkel claimed that, before meeting up with John Davies the night of his murder, he had been out drinking at a bar and smoking marijuana with a few friends. He then drove to the Davies' home, parked a few houses down, and entered through the unlocked door. Walking to John's room, he asked the boy if he wanted to come out and drink some beer. He agreed, and the pair went off to Edgewood Park in Redwood City. Parking near a shooting range and pocketing a knife that he had stashed in his glove compartment, John told investigators that it was at this point that he, quote, committed himself to killing his 15-year-old friend. 
Walking about a half a mile to two miles down the dirt road, John suddenly stabbed the boy in the back, and when he collapsed, he sat on his chest and stabbed him in the throat. When John started struggling beneath his attacker, John Dunkel picked up a rock and struck the boy in the head. He then dragged the boy's body to an opening in the ground, pushed it in, and left the scene. A week later, John returned to the area and found that the bloated body had been fed on by animals. When he went back again in May of 1984, all he found was a skull. When asked about his motive, John Dunkel said that when he mixed alcohol and drugs, he became an aggressive individual. He also said that John used to cause a computer monitor to flash, quote, irritating statements that would anger him. He later drew a map so the police could find whatever was left of John Davies. Then it was time to talk about Lance Turner. According to his confession, John was in the process of moving from Belmont to another part of the state, and on that day in October, purchased a six-pack of beer and went down to the park to climb the tree known as the Smoker's Tree. Stabbing at it with a hunting knife, the three girls came over to the tree looking for a pack of cigarettes. And after he introduced himself, they shared the last of his beer. After seeing a boy wearing athletic clothing running down the hill, the girls left and John decided to stay for a bit before heading back to the docks. That's when he saw that boy again, and to get his attention, John asked what time it was. When Lance answered and turned away to jog off, John stabbed him in the side with the hunting knife and continued to do so as the boy struggled. Fighting for his life, Lance bit John so severely that he later lost the nail, and furious, he stabbed the boy again in the throat and for a fourth time near his heart. Believing Lance was dead, John moved his body under some bushes and went home. Saying he later disposed of the knife and his shoes, John correctly described a birthmark on the side of Lance's neck. With no doubt that he was their killer, police followed the maps and found the remains of John Davies. Speaking with a psychiatrist on two occasions, John Dungle claimed his desire to kill started in the sixth grade after watching a movie where an older boy was about to kill a younger one to prevent him from disclosing the contents of his diary, which referenced other murders. In addition to the murders of John Davies and Lance Turner, when brought to trial, the prosecution introduced evidence that John Dunkel had attempted, and in one case succeeded, on three separate occasions to kill other teenage boys. There was 16-year-old Steve Murphy, who on November 5th, 1982, attended a party at a friend's house, and when he left at around 11.30 p.m., he suddenly lost consciousness just about 15 to 20 houses away from his own. When he woke the next morning, he was near a large dirt area surrounded by trees. Losing consciousness again, he woke up the next time inside of a hospital, discovering that both his spleen and kidney had to be surgically removed. He spent the next three weeks in the hospital with broken ribs and a broken pelvis, having no clue what happened to him that night after the party. In October of 1986, after obtaining a waiver of constitutional rights, a San Mateo police officer spoke with John about the assault, and he admitted that, after a night of drinking, he saw someone walking along the road, and after a few turns, happened upon him again and deliberately ran him over. Placing Steve's body in the back of his car, 
he drove to an isolated area in Belmont, took the boy out, and laid him on the roadway. He even referred to the victim as Steve Murphy, but did not explain how he knew the victim's name. Then there was 16-year-old Monty Hansen, who in 1982 spent a night out drinking with John Dunkel. On New Year's Eve, John arrived at Monty's home shortly before midnight, already pretty drunk. Telling the boy that he was dizzy, Monty told him to drink some water and come out to the backyard for a cigarette. When he turned around, Monty saw his friend approaching him with a two-by-four covered in nails. John struck the boy with one blow to the head and the rest to his forearm after Monty threw up an arm to try and defend himself. Monty would later say that John was smiling as he attacked him, and at some point, he went back inside and was seen putting a knife in the kitchen cabinet. Monty then screamed at John to get out and threatened to kill him if he harmed his little brother, who at the time was asleep in his bedroom. He then saw John run over to his car and never saw him again. In February of 1985, while undercover, Lisa heard John tell the story about the hit and run and the assault. The recordings of this conversation, referring to Steve Murphy and Monty Hansen, were later played in the courtroom. Those two boys managed to walk away from John Dunkel with their lives, but the last, Sean Denail, wasn't so lucky. On July 2nd, 1985, at around 6 p.m., the 12-year-old boy went to a friend's home in Sacramento. Riding on his bike, when Sean didn't come home by 9 p.m., his mother called the friend's home and found out that her son had left at around 7.30 p.m. Worried, she and her husband started searching the neighborhood. His body was found six days later at the Lower Sunrise Park, and lying nearby was a board with a nail in it and a discarded beer can. Sean's cause of death was the two stab wounds to his heart, caused by something thick, pointed, and dense, consistent, they said, with a marijuana pipe. There was also a wound to his skull, consistent with a nail embedded inside of a board. John was questioned on July 5th, but said that he did not know anything about the missing boy. He did, however, admit to being on the bike path at the park, drinking beer with his friends until 8.30 p.m. He said that he then rode home, but got a flat tire along the way and did not actually make it back to his home until 10 p.m. After Sean's body was found, detectives contacted John again, and he agreed to go to the police station. Waiving his constitutional rights again, John denied any involvement in the murder and agreed to let police search his sister's home, where he was living at the time. No evidence was found, and he later voluntarily provided hair, blood, and saliva samples. The very next day, John showed the detective where his tire went flat and where he and his friends were out drinking that night, as well as assisted in the search for his missing marijuana pipe. A few days later, he called the detective to tell him that, if swabbed, blood might actually be found on his bicycle, claiming it was from one of the friends he was drinking with that night, Paul Stanley, who fell onto his bike and might have bled, the following month, in an effort to try and get a confession, an undercover narcotics officer, Ronald Ghosh, posed as a man named Ron Cross and left a letter at John's home claiming he lived across the river, had seen what he did that night, and was going to tell the police. John gave the letter to the detective working the case, 
and Ron Cross left another letter asking for him to meet, saying he knew about the board and about the, quote, other stuff. He demanded money in exchange for his silence. John did not show up for the meeting or respond to the threat, but after investigators questioned him about the Ron Cross information, John phoned the detective and expressed his displeasure at the course of the investigation. While on the line, John asked, hypothetically, what might happen to him if he confessed to killing Sean Daniel, as well as if, again, hypothetically, he were at the scene and saw the victim screaming, but took no action to save him. Later, when speaking with Charles Rice, John allegedly mentioned Sean's murder, along with those of Lance Turner and John Davies. When finally confessing, he said that on the night of the murder, he and his friends were out drinking like he initially stated. After smoking and drinking a hell of a lot of beer, he and the friends parted ways, and John, as he was riding his bike back home, happened upon Sean Denale doing the same thing. He said, quote, I knew right then I was going to stop and kill him. Chasing after the boy and ramming into his bike, Sean fell off and John grabbed him and led him to a large tree. Sean, trying to save his own life, cooperated with what John wanted, causing him to want to humiliate the boy, and he forced him to take off his clothing and place it all in a pile. Putting a discarded two-by-four over the boy's eyes as he laid on his back, John took an electrician's instrument that he had been carrying around and thrust it into Sean's chest. Covering his mouth when Sean said he promised not to hurt him, John stabbed the boy again so hard that the blade separated from the handle. Screwing it back into place and stabbing Sean in the eyes, he then left the scene and discarded the weapons along the way. For his crimes on February 7, 1990, John Scott Dunkel was sentenced to death. He later pleaded guilty to Sean's murder and was given an additional life sentence. Things remained quiet until 2004, when John, years behind bars, now 41 years old, was found not mentally fit enough to be sentenced to death. He became the first adult California inmate on death row to be appointed a legal guardian to help him understand his predicament and to fight for an appeal was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, had a documented low IQ, and made wild claims like that he had a computer in his head and a telephone in his shoulder. However, in 2005, the Supreme Court of California voted unanimously to uphold his sentence. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear a terrible thing happened on February 8th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.